like Craig said, this is the second Sunday out of three Commitment Sundays for our Big Give initiative to be strong here, to improve our campuses so we can help connect and mobilize people on mission for God, uh, so we can send there our church plant in Rosh Pina, Israel. And so we're really excited about what God's doing. Uh, I think y'all have seen it, right? I mean, the last few weeks we've had uh, church planners on the platform. We've had them in connect groups, and uh, they've been sharing about what God is doing all around the world. And guess what? It's happening because of your faithfulness, First Colleyville. Here in Colleyville, Texas, you're making a worldwide impact. Can you believe that? In Colleyville, Texas, I don't even know where this place was before I started working here. And so here we are, Colleyville, Texas, making worldwide impact uh, because we're trusting God for big things. We're generous and, and so on and so forth. And so, hey, if you didn't bring your gift today, we still have one more Sunday next week. And so we'll see you at that point and you can bring your gift in. And so, uh, like I said, God's been moving and, and to see uh, what he's been doing. In fact, you've probably heard some of the statistics, so you might be bored by what I'm about to say. But, uh, you know, we set out to plant nine churches in five years. And as you know, we've planted now 12 churches in three years. Amen. And so God is moving, y'all. God's on the move. And in fact, we were told that we we're the eighth reproducing church out of reproducing churches in America. Um, so that's a pretty big thing to celebrate. I mean, we can clap for that if you want to. Uh, man, this is exciting stuff uh, that we get to be a part of. But here's what I want to talk about this morning. We may hear those statistics, we may hear those stats and be like, whoa, we've blown the goal out of the water. Like God has like, exceeded our expectations and then the temptation would be that we just back off the pedal. Right, we ever been there in life where we're, we're excelling and then we just, we just kind of back off the pedal. I actually got to experience this in my own life where I would begin to, uh, you know, back off the pedal per se um, with a once in a lifetime opportunity uh, where I got to hike the, te- the second, tallest, second tallest peak uh, in Indonesia. It's called Mount Renjani. In fact, I have a picture. I'm going to throw it up here. Uh, so it's about 12,000 plus feet from the bottom to the top. Right, so this is a mountain you typically prepare for, right? This is not just something you charge after and you say, I'm going to conquer it with all my life. Like, like, this is something you train for. Like, you go to Cedar Hill Park and you go and hike some of the smaller trails that you can build up and get onto this big old trail. And so, uh, but unfortunately, me and the guy that I'm traveling with, we're like, forget the training. We're going to hit the mountain and go for it, right? And so all of you are looking at me like, you're crazy. Uh, you know, looking back, we were kind of crazy. But really at the moment, we were young, ambitious, and we liked a good challenge. And so uh, we went ahead and started making the climb up. And so if you know anything about Southeast Asia, it's very hot, it's humid, it's sticky. And so we're down at the bottom of the base of the mountain. We go from hot, sticky, humid to now we're up in the first layer of clouds and it's like misty and it's cool and you, got, and, and you can't see your hands in front of you because the clouds are in front of you. You know, it's just, it's super neat. I mean, it's just the coolest thing ever. I actually have, actually have other photos. I wish I could share all of them of what it looks like at the different stages up the mountain. Um, and so we climbed and the more that we climbed, the more beautiful it got, right? I mean, just, I mean, it was just clouds everywhere. It was quiet. Anybody like quiet? I love quiet. And it's peace and quiet. We're just hiking up and it's beautiful. But every step that we continued to climb, it got more challenging, right? At one point, we were vertical. Now, if you only think about me, if you look at my, my, my structure up here, I was a little bit thinner at the point that I climbed this mountain. But to go vertical like this, like a guy my size to be going vertical, it's just not, it's not going to end up well, right? And so we, we climbed all the way up and we got to what's called the crater rim, which I'll show you here as a photo. This is about 8,000 plus feet in the air. So about 4,000 below the summit. But here we are on the crater rim. Uh, we're looking out. If those clouds weren't there, you could see the water and the islands and, and all that sort of thing. Uh, this is the second layer of clouds. You have the first, second, and third. We're in the second layer now looking over and it is just breathtaking. 
I mean, it was the most coolest thing that I've ever experienced in my life. I'm sitting up there and I'm like, I don't want to go back down. Like, this is so cool. And so we're sitting up there and, and it, I'm just taking it all in. Uh, but then I was reminded that I still have another 4,000 feet to go to get to the summit. Right? And it was so tempting. There's this point in time in my life at that moment where I was like, is it even worth going to the top? Like, is it even, like, this is, who, who would ever thought that I would have made 8,000 plus feet in my life? Like, like, I'll go to Cedar Hill Park, and I thought that was the extent of my hiking career, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, to be climbing this was ridiculous. And so, uh, that's, that I was tempted to not move on. And so, I think we could say the same thing probably in our own lives, right? There's things that we do, like we excel in work. We set a goal at our work, at our jobs, and, and we say we're going to meet this goal, and we drive, 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 we work, 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 and, and then we hit the goal, and then what do we do? we have arrived and we back off the gas pedal and we're like, it's all good. Like I, I met my sales goal. I've met my work. Goal. I, I'm just going to back off. I'm going to relax a little bit. Or here, here's another one. This is, this is one near and dear to my heart because I'm in school. Uh, you are excelling in school and then you begin to turn in some late papers thinking, man, it's not going to really affect my grade. I mean, it's not a big deal. I mean, a late paper, what's it going to do? You know, or, or what about this? A sport or a hobby, you work really hard at the fundamentals, the basics, and you work, 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 and then you go, I don't need those anymore, and I'm an expert. I'm just going to back off a little bit. Or here's, here's one for all my parents in the room. We're going to love this one. You work really hard to discipline your children and then you become exhausted and doubtful if it's even working and you kind of let them slip a little bit. You know, you kind of let them get away with a few things and all the kids in the crowd said, amen, right? You start letting them get away with some things and you're just, you're like, is this even working? And so you start backing off or, or think about, uh, here's one that I think can hit us all right here, uh, your walk with Christ. Think about the first time you engaged in, with Jesus for the first time. You were praying, you're, you're giving, you're, you're reading your Bible, you're fasting, you're doing all of these great things. And then there comes this moment where you have this thought in your head going, huh, I've arrived. Huh, I, I've done all I needed to do. I'm on a spiritual high. I feel great. I don't need to be reading my Bible. Hey, I've been through the one year Bible plan. I'm all good, honey. Like I got this all figured out. I know everything from Genesis all the way to Second Hezekiah. Are you awake this morning? There's no such thing as Second Hezekiah. All right, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. All right, so, so we kind of back off a little bit and we think, oh man, I, but it's at that moment that the enemy begins to put his foot right in the crack of that door and tries to swing it wide open and begins to wreak havoc in our, our relationship with Jesus, with our relationship with one another. And we just start backing off altogether thinking that we don't need to continue to do the work. We've already reached what we wanted. I've already won the dream spouse. I've already gotten where I wanted in my relationship with Christ. I'll just back off. And it's that that I want to speak to this morning. I want to speak to that moment. So go ahead and grab your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 6. And this is where we're going to be landing. And so as you're turning there in Nehemiah chapter 6, if you, you can open your browser, your Bible, whatever you got. I'm going to catch us up on the story, right? We've all slept since then, amen? Uh, I did too. That's why I have my, have my notes up here because I got to know where we're going. Right, we've all been sleeping. And so I'm going to catch us up on what's going on. And so in Nehemiah chapter 1, we find out about this guy named Nehemiah. Wow. <laughs> Nehemiah, who's the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, and, and he's serving the king, and, and he's faithful. And then Nehemiah, Nehemiah's brother shows up to the scene, and he makes known to Nehemiah uh, something that's actually going on in Jerusalem. The remnant is there. You know, they were hauled off to Babylonian exile, and now the remnant's back in Jerusalem. The, the walls are laid in ruins. The gates are burnt up. And so uh, Nehemiah hears about this, and then something like a divine discontentment begins to well up inside of him. He's like, man, I see my people, they're hurting and, and they're lied wide open to 
attack. They don't have a wall protecting them. They have no gates protecting them. I got to do something about it. And so he goes and he cries out to God in prayer. He says, God, forgive us. And, and help me to be a part in what you're doing to, to restore the people of Jerusalem. Help me play a part. And then we get into chapter 2 and we hear King Artaxerxes then sees that something's wrong with Nehemiah. Figure that out. A king goes to his servant and says, what's wrong? That's kind of a weird picture, but he does. He goes to the king. You know, the king goes to Nehemiah and says, what's wrong? You know, what, I see you're not yourself, Right? And so he goes and he begins to, uh, Nehemiah begins to explain to the king, hey, my people, are, you know, there's a remnant that's left and, and, and the wall is down, it's torn to pieces, the gate's broken, all those sorts of things. And Nehemiah says, I've got to do something about it. And so the, the king then goes, okay, well, what's your request? So then Nehemiah begins to unpack. Here's what I need to do. I need to go and I need to go help rebuild the wall. I need to go help the, re the restoration of Jerusalem. I need resources. I need protection. I need the letters necessary to do all this work. And the king says, your requests are approved. And right off the bat, we see that God is involved in every step of the process. Every step of the process, God is involved because he, he had persuaded the king's heart to give Nehemiah the resources he needed. Catch this, folks. Nehemiah goes from cupbearer servant to a leader who is governor over Jerusalem. Why? Because God is in the process. He's in the working. God is in the midst of this thing that is going on. And so he goes and the, and the king sends him all the resources. He says, here's the Calvary. Here's the letters. Here's everything you need. Get after it. And so Nehemiah goes on his way and he begins to get the work done. We go to chapter three. We, we learn about all the uh, types of specifics of the building uh, and how they built it. If you're an engineer in the room, this would be your chapter. You can check it out after the service. Uh, it talks about all the specifics of how they accomplished the building. Uh, you go into chapter four, which was last week when Craig preached, talked about all the oppression and the threats and all those sorts of things that they experienced um, while they were building the wall to try to prevent the building of the wall. But yet again, they continued to persevere. They continued to drive. In chapter 5, now the oppression moves from the outside and comes to the inside. There is drama within the community. They're turning against one another, taking advantage of one another. And so Nehemiah handles that situation, which brings us to the climax, right? If you watch Netflix, this is what you've been binge watching for, right? You've come to the moment. And I'm sorry to tell you that next week is the last episode. You're going to have to find a new show, okay? Um, which we all hate when we binge watch, right? You go, oh man, what am I going to watch next? So here's the moment, chapter 6, the completion of the wall. So let's go ahead and start reading in Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. And this is the word of God. And when Samballot and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab, the rest of the enemies, uh, heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that no gap was left in it, though at the time I had not installed the doors in the city gates, Samballot and Geshem sent me a message, come. Let's meet together in the villages of the Ono Valley. And they were planning to harm me. So here we're introduced again to the troublemakers, the one and only. We all know about them. We've been learning about them, Tobiah and Sanballat, right? These are the characters that, that are wreaking havoc. They're the drama mamas of the town. You know, they're, they're just trying to stop what Nehemiah's doing because they see that God is involved. And so they're trying to stop him. And so here we are, you know, we find out that the wall is completed. The wall's finished. In fact, when we read on later in this passage, we'll find out it was done in 52 days. Yeah, 52 days. That is record timing. Now, some people say that maybe part of the wall was still there and so it didn't take as much to try to rebuild it. But still, 52 days tells us that God was involved, that there was a supernatural power helping them to restore this wall. But then we learned that not only is the wall built, 
there's more work to be done. He says the gates have yet to be hung. In fact, if we read later, the city has yet to be filled. There's yet to be guards on watch. There's still more work. Even though the wall was the goal, there was still more work to be done because they needed to do more work within the city itself. And that's the main idea. So go ahead and get your pen and paper out. I want you to write down this main idea. There's more work to be done. There's more work to be done. Right, it'd been tempting to just get lazy and get distracted and get indifferent and say, you know what, forget it. We've done, we've exceeded our goal. We have built the wall. Why hang the gates? I don't like them anyway. I'm an open concept, modern kind of person, so I don't like the open gates, right? I watch a bunch of HGTV and they say, just leave the gates down, right? They could have just done that, but they said, hey, we still need to hang the gates. There's still more work uh, to be done, right? This is tempting in our own marriages. Think about a, a marriage between the husband and the wife. At first, they're trying to woo one another. They're trying to win one another. They're spending all this money and they're taking each other out on dates, showing up at work and surprising them, buying them flowers, all those sorts of things. And they're just fueling their marriage with all this passion and this love. And they're trying to woo one another one over. And then a few years pass by and then hmm, what happened to him bringing flowers? We begin to let off the gas a little bit and oh, well, you know, I've already won the dream spouse. So what do I got to do? Why do I have to keep working at this? Like I've already reached the goal. Or how about this, your walk with Christ, right? You get to this moment in your walk with Christ and, and we said this earlier that you, you're driving, you're pressing, you're reading, you're praying and you're doing all of these things and then you begin to believe the lie straight from the pit itself and, and you hear this, ah, just take it easy. Just take it easy. It's no big deal. Like you can slip a little bit. It's all, it's all good. Like you just back off. Like you don't need to pursue your relationship with Christ. Like what is even that? See, we do this. This is what we do. We, we start pursuing these relationships. We're working on them. We're working on them. We're working on them. And then we begin to pull off because we've won the dream spouse or we've gotten somewhere where there's a spiritual high with our relationship with Jesus and we begin to back away. But there's more work to be done. In fact, when we read Nehemiah, here's what we typically think of. You ready? Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the wall. Nehemiah, something about some kind of wall. I don't remember what's wrong with the wall, but there's a wall involved. But here's what I want you to see is that the book of Nehemiah, chapter 6, the wall is not the main idea, y'all. The wall is only one piece in God redeeming the nation of Israel, upholding the Abrahamic covenant to, to multiply his descendants, to make them prosperous, to bring them to the promised land. That wall is just one piece in the entire process of what, was, what God was trying to accomplish. Hear this even more. The big give is only one part in the big mission to redeem and reconcile people back to God. Right, so the whole reason we're doing this big initiative to be strong here so we can send there to improve what we're doing here and planting a church in Israel is because we want to see God move and continue to work and, and the big give is just one tangible way. It's one intentional way to be a part of what God's doing to redeem and reconcile his people. Now, here's how Nehemiah continued to work. Because we know that as we continue the work, challenges are going to come. So here's point number one. Number one, Nehemiah remained focused on the mission. He remained focused on the mission. Look at Nehemiah verses one through four. We're going to read, read some of this. When Samballot and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that no gap was left in it, though at that time I had not installed the doors in the city gates, Sam Ballot and Geshem sent me a message. Come, let's meet together in the villages of the Ono Valley. And they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing an important work and cannot come down. 
Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same proposal and I gave them the same reply. So here we go again. Sam bowed to buy the same old thing over and over and over. They're trying to stop the work. They're trying to prevent the things from being done. And so they go back to the drawing board. They're like, okay, it didn't work. Y'all, it didn't work. We're trying to stop him with all the threats and the oppression. and It's just not working. So they go back to the drawing board and they say, okay, if that doesn't work, let's move from the outside and let's go to the inside. Let's try to turn the, the people of Jerusalem and Nehemiah against each other. Right, if it's not gonna work from the outside, let's cause destruction on the inside. So this is what they do. They're gonna try to distract the leader of who is leading the entire building of the wall, Nehemiah. And so they go to Nehemiah and they say, Nehemiah, hey, would you come and meet us in the valley of, the, the valley of Ono, the Ono Valley? Now I'm going to tell you right now, here's, here's a good word from a pastor up here. You ready? If anybody calls you and says, hey man, meet me at Oh No Valley, it's probably an Oh No idea. Okay, so don't do it, right? It's probably not going to end up well. Uh, either way, whatever that means, we know that scholars say it would have taken a few days to get there and there would have been challenges along the way and the work would have been slowed down. And so they're trying to distract him. They're trying to go after his priorities. They're trying to see if he would waver and be deterred from the mission. But look at his response. Look what he says. He says, I'm doing an important work and can't come down. I'm doing an important work. Here's what I want you to hear about this part right here. His response is so good because he's saying, the work that I'm doing is important. And the reason why it's important is not because of what I'm doing, but because of who I am doing it for. Let me say that again, church. The work is important not because of what we're doing, but because of who we're doing it for. See, the whole reason of why he was doing what he's doing, what was driving him, what was pushing him, was because he knew who he was doing the work for. He was doing it for God. God was the reason why they're doing it. God had set them on this mission to accomplish the, the restoration of Jerusalem. The wall was one piece in the process that God was using to restore them. The big give is, is one step, one process in the big picture of trying to redeem and reconcile people back to God. It's our tangible way of being involved in what God is doing here and around the world. He was focused on the mission. Church, we can't back off on our mission. It's pedal to the metal, baby. We keep on going because our God is big. He's called us to something. Here's number two. He was engaged in the mission. He was engaged in the mission. Look at verses five through nine. Sam Bout sent me the same message a fifth time by his aide who had an open letter in his hand. It was written, it is reported among the nations and Geshem agrees that you and the Jews plan to rebel. This is the reason you're rebuilding the wall. According to the reports, you, be, you are to become their king and have even set up the, uh, the prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim on your behalf there is a king in Judah. These rumors will be heard by the king, so come and let us confer together. Then I replied to him, there's nothing to these rumors you are spreading and you're inventing them on or in your own mind. For they were all trying to intimidate us, saying they will drop their hands from their work and it will never be finished. Right, so he remained engaged in the mission. He, so they go, okay, hey, if we can't distract Nehemiah, then let's try to disqualify him. Let's try to disqualify him from the work and the ministry that he's trying to accomplish. Trying to accomplish. So, so he says, okay, so you see these accusations start being brought against him. It says that he's trying to rebel and overthrow the king. 
And right, this is nothing new to King Artaxerxes. People are trying to overthrow him all the time. So this is not nothing new. But what's something, something that's interesting to highlight in this passage is it says that there was an open letter that Nehemiah received. Now, what's key to that? When we know when we read scripture, there's some, there's some reason why that's emphasized. And what we know is that when a letter is sent, it's usually stamped with a seal. And so when the person who's receiving it knows that it has not been read yet. But Nehemiah receives a letter that's already been opened, which means the rumors have been spreading while, while the letter was coming to him. And that possibly King Artaxerxes already heard what's going on. And he's already heard the rumors that he's trying to rebel. And that, 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 that king is the one person who could pull all the resources and pull everything away from him. Church, this is happening today. This is not just some Old Testament idea, right? We don't just read this and go, man, this is so distant, like this don't happen today. This is happening today. There are people bringing accusations against churches, against pastors, against leaders, against Christians for what they believe in to try to deter them, to try to move them away from the mission, and disqualify them from their, their, their witness in their community and in around the world. It's happening today. I got a pastor, a friend that lives up in Montana, and he stood firm for what he believes in. And they're bringing accusations against him and his church and they're trying to deter, trying to disqualify their witness in their town and around the world. It's happening today, folks. It's in America just literally a few weeks ago. That breaks my heart that a friend of mine has to go through something like that. And that's just one story out of the thousands of stories of how people are bringing accusations against God's church. Trying to maneuver them and try to deter them, trying to get them off the mission because they realize that there's a great work that's happening and they're trying to stop it. But I hope, here's my prayer and my hope is that we would respond just as Nehemiah did. Look how he responds. Look at those verses we just read. The first thing that you see Nehemiah do is that he acknowledges the accusation, right? He says, hey, I see the accusation. I'm not going to be irresponsible. I'm not going to play it off like it didn't happen. I'm not going to play it off like it's not real. He says, I'm going to be responsible. I have my eye on it and I'm paying attention to it. But then secondly, he takes that accusation ultimately to God, right? He takes it ultimately to God. He says, in the end, it doesn't matter what happens in Jerusalem, what happens in that land. In the end, our God has final word. He has final say. He is a God of justice, and so even though it may not be received now, it is coming later. So he says, I'm going I'm to put it in the hands of God. In fact, this is the model we see from Jesus. Jesus models this. In 2 Peter 2, uh, 23, he says this, when he was insulted, that being Jesus, he did not insult them in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That's Jesus. That's our model. That when he was insulted, when he was, when he was suffering, he didn't go and try to retaliate. He just said, hey, I'm going to put that in my father's hands because my father's a father of justice. And in the end, he's got the final word. Which leads to number three is that Nehemiah not only had his eye on the accusation, not only did he take it to the father, but then he continued the work that, that God has placed in front of him. He didn't allow the accusation to try to deter him from the mission he kept his eyes focused. He was engaged in the mission, moving forward all the way. And he said, I see the accusation out there. I'm acknowledging it. I'm responsible for it. I know what's happening, but the mission is important. God has called me to this important work. And my prayer is that's how we would respond to accusations that brought against us. Because in the end, we know that our God has the final word. That our God will bring justice in the end. Which brings us to verses 10 through 14. Let's continue reading. He says this, And I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, 
son of Medetabel, who was restricted to his house. He said, let's meet at the house of God inside the temple. Let's shut up the temple doors because they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you tonight. But I said, should a man like me run away? How could someone like me enter the temple and live? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him because of the prophecy he's spoken against me. Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He was hired so I would be intimidated and do as he suggested, sin and get a bad reputation in order that they could dis discredit me. And so you see again, they're trying to disqualify him, discredit him, trying to turn him away from what God had called them and called him to do. And so here we're told about the prophet Shemaiah who comes and it's supposed to bring God's word. Here is the God's, here's God's word. And so he comes to Nehemiah and says, hey, I think God's calling us and he's telling us to go in the temple, to lock the doors and hide because someone's coming to kill you. And what does Nehemiah do? He goes, that's interesting that you say that because I, I, last I checked, God's word says that, that I'm not supposed to go into that temple. In fact, here's two responses that Nehemiah has. He says, response one, I'm a governor and I don't run away. Right, he says, who am I to run away? Governors don't just run away and leave their people stranded and be abandoned, open to attack. He says, I'm gonna stand here, stand my ground because that's what a governor do, does. And then number two, he says, hey, here's the deal is that, hey, God has told me that only a priest can go into the temple, right? This is the Old Testament law. Only a priest can go in, no one else. And to go in, not being a priest would be against God's word. And so Nehemiah says, hey, I'm not gonna do what you told me to do because it's not in alignment with God's word. And can I just speak to something real quick about that? Is here's the deal. If someone comes to you and says, hey, I've heard from God, uh, I would be quickly opening scripture and verse and telling me, uh, where is that? Because the last I checked, uh, if I want to know God's will for my life, I'm going to know his word, right? This word, these scriptures here are foundational for what we believe in. It's structural to what we believe in. And so we stand on the scriptures that are without error. This is what our hope is. This is what we say, hey, this is what we're going to live by. This is what we're going to be guided by. This, this means a whole lot to us. And also for him, he said, hey, here's the deal. I'm more, I'm more intrigued about what God is doing and, and what his word says than what you say that I should be doing. And so if it ain't in alignment with his word, I'm not doing it. So he said, hey, I'm not running away. I'm not going in that temple because, hey, here's the deal. I know what God said and I, I'm going to do what he has called me to do. Here's number three. Uh, Nehemiah was united around the mission. United around the mission. Not only was he reunited or united, but also the people were united around the mission as well. So look, look at verses 15, 16, and then we'll also catch 19 here. It says this, uh, the wall was completed in 52 days on the 25th day of the month of Elul. And when our enemies heard this, all the surrounding nations were intimidated and lost their confidence for they realized that this task had been accomplished by our God. Verse 19, these nobles kept mentioning Tobiah's good deeds to me and they reported my words to him and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. So here we go again. We find out that the wall is completed in 52 days. It's record timing. God is in it. And every accusation and every challenge and everything that they experienced in life and in that moment of building the wall, God was there in the process. Okay, let me go back real quick and rewind. Uh, let me say something to you. Here's a word for you this morning. In every challenge, in every circumstance, in every opposition, when you think that God is not working, he is working. 
God is orchestrating. He is holding together. He is upholding with his power. The even, just the fact that we're sitting here in our chair, he's sustaining you. And so when you think that you don't see God working, he's working, church. He's working. And every challenge and every opposition, all along the way, as we're walking with him faithfully, he is, he is working everything to the good of his plan. And we could trust that. God is at work. But here's the deal. If there's one thing that I've learned in some of the few years I've been in ministry, if there's one thing that is so destructive is that when a local body of believers begins to turn on one another. And that's what they're trying to do. By sending, you hear, you hear Tobiah, he kept sending letters to Nehemiah. Look what I'm doing. It's good. It's successful. Trying to turn the people away, trying to turn each other against, against each other, trying to cause division in the community. And let me tell you, church, the one thing that is gonna, that would cause so much destruction and distraction in this world is that when we are divided as the body, when we say, hey, hey, when, when we don't resolve conflict, uh, when our, our preferences outweigh our passions to see the, the lives of lost people being saved, when our preferences versus our passion to see people disciple uh, outweigh that, uh, when, when, when we begin to go around and start gossiping to one another about an issue we have with someone within the church or a leader, um, here's the deal. If you've got enough time talking to someone else about it, then why don't you go to the person that you have the issue with? Uh, that one hits home to me as well. I know that's a heavy one to take. You're like, Cameron, that's a lot of work. I know it is. It ain't easy. But I'll tell you right now that if we don't deal with conflict, if we don't handle our, our passions the right way and we begin to lean on more preferences, if we uh, begin to go around and start gossiping instead of actually handling the conflicts that we have, uh, then there will be a division that begins to happen. We allow the enemy to get his foot right in the door and he begins to crank that sucker wide open. See, the work was important to that community. It was important to Nehemiah. The work was so important that it was important to God and it was important to Nehemiah and the community. And because it was so important to them, they said, hey, because it is important, because of who we're doing it for, we're going to handle every conflict, every situation, just as God would call us to do. Church, there was conflicts that happened in Jerusalem. There were things that happened, but because the mission was so important, because they said, hey, because of who we're doing it for, we're going to handle conflict. We're going we're gonna to say, hey I, hey, I love preferences, but I'm more passionate about seeing people come to know Jesus. Hey, I know I have my preferences, but man, I'd rather go make disciples than make disciples, because in the end, when I die, my preference ain't staying here. It's the ripple effect of the disciples and the people that God has impacted through my life. See, it was important to them. And so therefore, they handled it accordingly. Church, we have a strategic opportunity right now to be a part of this big given initiative to be strong here, to send there. In fact, here's what I want to do to wrap up our time together is I want to finish the story of my mountain climb on Mount Rajani. And this is not a story that ultimately I'm not proud of. It's not a story that I go around and I beat my chest to and, and I'm like, this is the best story ever. Look what I've done. Because I want to show you something. Go ahead and put the picture up here on the screen. So this is the summit of Mount Rinjani, taken from the crater rim. If you remember where the crater rim was earlier, it was about 8,000 plus feet in the air. This would be another 4,000 feet uh, above the crater rim. 
And so here I am, I made it to the crater rim, I'm looking at the summit, I'm looking at where I want to go, and I'm just taken away, it's just breathtaking, I love the scenery, and I'm like, and this thing just crossed my mind, why would I go to the top when I just experienced the, the once in a lifetime experience of just 8,000 feet, right? Like I said, this was beyond what I could even do. I thought Cedar Hill Park was the extent of my, of my climbing abilities. And here I am, 8,000 feet in the air. I'm like, dude, I'm good. Why would I continue to work harder and be challenged and stretched? And, and why don't I just enjoy this? Because here's the deal in the end. All I got to do is just go back down this way. And then I get to go home and say, hey, look, I've been 8,000 feet in the air. I want to show you another picture. Here's another picture. This is sunrise on Mount Ranjani at the summit, some 12,000 plus feet in the air. It's beautiful, it looks over, that kind of, you're looking over, it's an active volcano, so you're actually kind of looking over the, uh, the, the kind of that volcano there in the middle, and you're, I mean, it's just beautiful. But here's the deal. Do you know how I got to see that picture? I got to see it on my buddy's camera as he came down, and he said, bro, you missed out. He said, bro, you thought that there was nothing more significant at the other, the, the, at the top of the mountain. You thought that the crater rim was it, that you thought you had arrived, that you thought you had hit your goal. But dude, it was so much better at the top when you missed it. And there I stood on this little, little index card screen, this picture, and I was just devastated that I had missed out on this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Hey, look at my frame. I ain't going back up there anytime soon until I do some training, baby. You know, so I'm just like, man, I'm just like, man, I missed out on that. And here's the deal is that the crater rim was one piece of the big picture, the big scheme of what was being experienced up there on the the summit. See, the wall was one piece and what God was doing to restore the nation of Jerusalem. The big give is one step, one process, and God reconciling and redeeming people back to himself. It's one step. But here's the deal. I want to throw the picture back up there again real quick. As I look at this, there's one thing that I'm reminded of. And I look at this picture often because it makes me thankful. And it makes me thankful for what Jesus has accomplished. That as he traveled through Jerusalem, as he made his way through Jerusalem where he would be hung on a cross and die for you and me, as he would walk through and he would journey, he would be beaten, mocked, bruised, stripped of his clothes, humiliated. He continued to press forward every step of the way as he was going through and he was experiencing this deep suffering and anguish and he kept making his way through and no matter how bad it got, he continued to press forward all the way through to the end. He gets to the garden of Gethsemane. There he drops to his knees in the greatest anguish that any person has ever experienced in their life and there he is sweating blood drops, it says in the gospel, because he was so stressed out. He's in so much anguish and he had been experiencing this suffering that is beyond on all human belief and there he is on his knees he's crying out to the father and he says not my will but your will be done and then he gets up from the garden of Gethsemane and he goes and there's the cross looming in the distance he's been betrayed by his friends he's got accusations on him that are not even true but what does he do he doesn't go and start retaliating getting after him he says the mission is critical the mission is important not my will but your will not my will but your will be done and he keeps driving and moving and moving and there he gets to the cross and he's hung up and he, there he dies and he says these words he says it is finished But then the journey doesn't stop there because we know the story, right? Then three days later, he raises up out of the grave and he is seated at the right hand of glory. 
And he is coming back again, church. He's coming back. The king is coming. And that is something to be excited about. That should be something that moves you in your chair. That's a good place to clap. I'm just telling you, not for me, but for what he's done. Hey, the days are over when we will sit in a church and hear the gospel preach like this and do nothing. The days are over because it is mission critical. It is something that we celebrate as a church because Jesus has done a work that we can't do. And he said, it is finished because we couldn't do it. He went all the way to the cross and he said, it is finished. He did the work. Why? Because we were incapable of doing it. See, I was incapable of the move to the summit, but my God, but my Savior went all the way across. He said, it is finished. And it is out of the finished work of Christ that we operate. Not, a, not out of our own power, but out of the finished work of Christ. And so when we think about the big gift, when we think about what we're doing as a church, here's what I want to encourage you to do. You're saying, how can I play a part? How can I play a vital part in the big gift and helping reconcile and redeem people back to God? How can I play a big part? I want you to look at the finished work of Christ. Look what he's done for you. Go back to that moment when he called you to himself, when he wooed you over from your sinful life. Look at that moment. Allow that to determine how you will play a part. Because I'm telling you right now, when you look at that, man, it makes you go, man. I am compelled to do whatever I got to do to make sure that this thing gets moved forward because I've seen what God's done in my life. I've seen what he's done in my wife's life. I've seen what he's done in my family's life. I've seen what he's done to several people's lives and I am compelled to play a part in this. We operate from the finished work of Christ and there's more work to be done and we're not doing it out of our own power but we're doing it out of the power of Christ that dwells within us, the Holy Spirit that's empowering his church. So I want everybody just to close your, close your eyes and bow your heads. I just want to move into a time of response. And man, I've already asked you to think about how to play a part in the big gift. But here's what I want to do. As your, as your heads are bowed, eyes are closed, I want, to, I want to talk to the person in the room that from the beginning you got in here to the end where we're at right now, you know that God's working on your heart. And maybe as I was explaining the gospel, knowing what Jesus went through for you and for me, you're saying, man, I'm compelled. How can I, what can I do? There's nothing you can do. Jesus has already done it all for you. But what he does extend to you is an invitation to take what he's done to give you eternal life forever. The way that you receive that is, by, is through an invitation. He's inviting you now to take hold of that invitation. And the way that you do that is by turning your heart and surrendering it to God. Now in church we use a prayer, but really God knows your heart right now. But what I want to do is I want to go ahead and lead you anyways through a prayer of salvation. So, so I'm just going to pray. And if this is you this morning, you say, hey, man, I want to give my life to Jesus. I know my sin has separated me from him. And that only through Jesus can I be made right. Only through Jesus can I be brought to the Father. And so if that's you this morning, you say, hey, man, I want to accept Jesus in my life. He says, hey, one, we got to admit that we're a sinner. Two, that we need to believe that he is Lord of our lives and to confess to him that we have done wrong. And so I just want to lead you through a prayer that does exactly that. So just pray this after me. This is you. Father, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of you. And God, I believe that you are Lord. Thank you for the work that you have accomplished thank you that I can come before you. And God, I confess that there's sin in my life. God, I confess that I have lived a life that tries to be in rebellion towards you. But God, now, now I surrender my life to you. 
God, I give my life to you. God, make me whole, make me clean. God, I surrender to you. Thank you for my new life. In Jesus' name, amen. And God, we, we pray now just for everybody in this room. Guys, we're thinking about how can we play a part in your mission and what you're trying to accomplish. God, would you burden our hearts for the lost, burden our hearts to see those who are not disciples, to be disciples, God, to play an intricate part in what you're trying to do. God, put a fire in our hearts that can't be contained or controlled. God, use this church, God, as a beacon of hope here in our community and around the world. God, I pray for everybody in this room. God, I ask that you will continue to guide us and lead us and protect us as we go about our day. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.